Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is John Gerster. John is a partner at Activate Capital, a venture capital and private equity firm that invests in platforms for a sustainable, resilient future. He is also the chairman and founder of Therm Solutions, which is accelerating the world's transition from high global warming potential refrigerants that are still used in more than 99% of the world's HVAC systems. John has been a consistent presence in the sustainability space for almost 20 years, having founded and run Groom Energy Solutions for 16 years, starting in 2005, through its acquisition by Dalkia in 2016 and up through 2021. Groom, now Dalkia Energy Solutions, is a market-leading provider, commercial and industrial building efficiency solutions. Prior to entering the sustainability space, John's earlier career years were spent at J.P. Morgan, HP, Open Market, and Charles River Ventures. Along the way, he has also co-founded and served on the board of Digital Lumens and served in an advisory capacity for Recurve, and known Civi Ventures, among others. He is a patent holder and was a 2020 Environment Plus Energy Leader Top 100 honoree. John earned his bachelor's degree in engineering from Duke University, where he was a few years ahead of me, and his MBA from Northwestern University. He and his wife, Kim, live north of Boston and have three children. John, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a long time. We were catching up before we started recording. It's been a long time since our days on the Pratt School of Engineering Board of Advisors. That was a long time ago. So anyway, good to catch up. What are you doing today? Tell our audience about Activate Capital and your role there. Yeah, so I started with Activate full-time last year. So I'm one year into it full-time and a bit part-time. And it started like a lot of things in business. It started because I knew somebody I'd worked with in the past. I liked them, respected them, trusted them, thought I'd want to be around them. Obviously, venture capital is an industry that can be pretty exciting. And I had been in it 20 years before. So the platform is a growth investing platform. It's venture capital, but it's not early stage or seed. It's really a stage where the companies are still going to be raising capital to invest, where they'll still be burning capital into big markets. But we like to think we can bring some value around probably three markets. It's energy, mobility, and industrial tech. So generally it's under climate tech. So I'm a partner activate in a new fund that we raised that was coincidental with me joining. It's a $500 million fund. You started actually with them as an operating partner, right? Yeah, that was the middle of 2021. We agreed that my background at that point was as an operating executive in the energy tech space. 
And we thought I could start to work with some of the portfolio companies that were already investments that Activate had made. And we knew we'd be raising a new fund, which we announced maybe the middle of last year. So the operating partner role, it is common as a term. I've had some people ask me, like, what's an operating partner? It's very custom to the firm. Our firm is 15 people. But the term is normally more associated with private equity, which is ownership structure investment versus where we operate as a minority investor. And operating partners, I'm sure we both have friends who are inside of the large private equity firms, and they're typically specialists to try to help the portfolios that are of companies that are owned, where in venture, it's a little bit different. Your capacity of influence is, is slightly different, but I'm definitely wearing a hat more today as you and I reflect on how long it's been since we've known each other. I wear a hat probably more now as an operator than I do as an investor until I've been in it a little bit longer. You caught the sustainability bug almost, what, 20 years ago when you founded Groom. You were with Charles River Ventures, so in the VC space prior to that. So how did you get out of VC into entrepreneurship and into the sustainability space back then? Yeah, I'd love to tell you it was profound. I've definitely, over my career in this broad set of sectors that you call sustainability, they, I've met people who like literally out of high school where we are going to focus on things that fit into the sustainability bucket. I was not that. You and I are both Boston folks, and I knew energy tech was strong in Boston. And so I was hopeful to try to find a startup in the energy sector, but I didn't have an understanding of the sector. I couldn't spell kilowatt hour. So it was a little bit more that I knew the broad sector was interesting. I liked the domain. And I was just fortunate enough to meet some people who ended up becoming the basis for what we started that became Groom Energy. So now that many years later, I think I'm better able to assess patterns of adoption. Now, of course, it's a feel-good category. It relates a lot if we're going to talk about sort of running a company and if you're going to run a company in climate tech, or you're going to run a company in oil and gas, like right. you can guess it'd be a load more fun to have a team you're promoting that you say, listen, we're going to do something that has fulfillment in life. Not that oil and gas doesn't for some people, but there is a broader awareness today than there was 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, certainly the whole topic of sustainability and global warming, climate change, however you want to describe it, there's significantly more awareness of it than there was back in the days when you started Groom. I described it a little bit in the introduction, but give the audience a little bit more of a description of exactly what the business is doing. Groom Energy was an enterprise-focused ESCO, sometimes used the term energy service company. And the objective was to help commercial industrial companies reduce the energy consumption of their buildings. And we started in 2005. And if you can imagine what I was going through coming out of venture, when I told my venture capital friends I was doing a building energy efficiency retrofit company where we were going to turnkey install projects that retrofit buildings so their energy consumption was lower, they just tuned out. And they said, you're not doing solar? There was, there was such an awareness around the renewable side. Energy yeah. efficiency was definitely not sexy. But that's the business we started building in 2005. And it ended up working out now we can talk about sort of the things that happened along the way, but it was a straight services business that was in a category that has obviously awareness around the sustainability category. It's an easy one to say it has an environmental impact, but it was enterprise selling. It was convincing yeah. corporate managers to change their behavior and making capital investment for reducing consumption. Were you doing LEDs right at the beginning or did that come later? No, that came later. So we did typically in a building, the loads in a building like your home are basically lighting, heating, and air conditioning. And then there's control systems on all those. And so that's true in most commercial buildings. And each building type is slightly different. 
But what happened was we had started the company. We were doing well. We started in Boston and we just started literally cold calling. I can still remember getting hung up by every plant manager. We were doing kind of industrial buildings. We were doing warehouses. We were literally using Google to look for big rooftops to find the biggest buildings because they had the biggest loads. So we did a lot of lighting with fluorescent lighting retrofits off of the traditional systems. Because I've been in venture and tech side, we started to study LED applications and that the math was broken. It was a traditional, the curve of semiconductors, it was just too expensive. But maybe in 2007 or eight, we saw that the technology for the LED chips was coming along fast enough that we could anticipate for the next few years, you would see a way to do an LED product that was commercial industrial uh, appropriate relative to cost. And so what I did was I went to some of my venture capital friends I said, listen, we have customers like GE and Thermo Fisher and EMC. We're doing these kind of things to save money. We can see where the math is going to work. And so I really wanted to just recruit a team that had come from an LED company in Boston called Color Kinetics. So I got some of my friends from Venture Capital who didn't know the, the climate tech or the, certainly didn't know the building side, just to give us a seed note to recruit the team. So we started as, we called it Groom LED, but we basically put them in the back of our warehouse and then we mocked up some things and took them out to the customers and said, would this work relative to the application, which was basically a computer light. That was really what it was, which was mesh network, intelligence sensing, because an LED system, we knew the chip was the most expensive part, but it was much more of a venture capital type startup than what Groom Energy was. Groom Energy was, we didn't raise any capital really. We just started to do it on our own. And then it grew into a company that could fund itself. So it was a service business. It was a relatively low gross margin business compared to tech. So that was an interesting one to sit between. I was running Groom Energy as a service company and then telling the venture folks, I can recruit a team. And then I eventually we would build a company as a partner company to Groom Energy. So there was a period that was pretty entertaining where I was doing both. And that was actually 2000. I think we'd raised a seed note in like 2008. And if you remember... There was a period in 2008, 2009 that none of us can forget that the world collapsed. Yes. So that was, if I reflect back to moments in time, that was a particularly challenging moment in time. Like we have those kind of startup stories about when you almost died. Yeah. I, had, I had two startups I was working on at the same time in that particular moment. I can still remember where I was sitting with my wife, Kim, at the computer when the world collapsed. And I'm like, oh, I was looking at her. I'm like, well, I'm not having a pair of bills. Like, it was great. I can imagine. I was actually a little curious. That was one of the questions I had planned to ask you was about the crisis, because on one hand, the real estate market completely blew up. And on the other mm -hmm. hand, you're offering cost savings because you'd come in. I remember you talking about this back when we were on the Duke board together. You'd go into a factory or a store or whatever and pretty much do the overnight work. And you'd have a pretty much immediate impact on cost in terms of operating those buildings. So to some extent, you could argue it both ways. So it sounds like it went more the negative way for you during the crisis than well, positive Principally way. because we were in a capital expense business. And when the world pauses, it doesn't mean people don't put capital towards savings. It's just there's a moment in time. And it also wasn't strategic. And it certainly wasn't sexy. And so in a world where you're fighting for capital, building retrofits was not necessarily going to be the top of anyone's schedule. So listen, there's moments in time when you try to assess how long is the world going to stay like this, sort of like we're going through right now in our current market. But that was with startups. I think we live it today with some of the companies I talked to that how you weather storms is as a real test of, do you have something you believe that fundamentally can survive like mini cycles, longer cycles are different. 
And at some level, it's a reminder of like we have today with all startups, which is cash is king. Like you have to have be able to weather the storm with cash in some cases. So we didn't have a balance sheet on either company at that moment. Go back to the earliest of days. How would you grade yourself as a early first time entrepreneur? What did you get right? And what did you not get right? <clears throat> I don't think I imagined I would even be CEO of what became Groom Energy. When we first got it started, I thought of myself as a venture startup kind of person. But if I had to grade myself at that moment, I mean, listen, in most cases, we know growing companies, the report card is your own every day, every year. But in the end, a lot of these are measured on outcomes, maybe unfairly so. But at that particular period in 2005, six, seven, I felt like I was leveraging my skills pretty well because I had a venture connection set that would trust me that there was something there. And I believed there was something there and they had conviction. And I think it turned out well. And on the services side, I think a couple of these key things like how do you hire, how do you manage? And I wasn't an experienced manager uh, when we were starting Groom Energy. It was what you learn in startups is you're not born a manager. You sort of grow into it because you're in a situation where it presents itself in many cases in startups. And some people flourish in that and some people it's not well suited to them. But it did work for me in that particular circumstance that may not end of others. And I think one of the things you kind of reflect on is when were you happiest? I definitely wasn't happiest when the world collapsed. I was more happy, I think, at different points where we had a lot of things going on. And as many customer-focused startups are, we were really happy when you had a bunch of customers saying what you're doing is helpful through their wallets or just through them telling you. And that felt like you were really doing something useful. I know you're not doubling down and going for entrepreneurial experience number two, but if you were going to do it again, what do you think back and say, oh, I would definitely do this differently this a second time through? I think I have a healthy sense of you have to ask yourself what are the motivating things around anything that's entrepreneurial. It's certainly today, it's a more hot term to be used. And even 20 years ago, startups were not professionalized as it is today. So doing something that's risky, I can remember at one point, I was at JP Morgan. I was considering going to business school and it was a startup software company that was recruiting me to help them out. And I decided not to go there for a couple of reasons. But one of the core reasons was I don't think I had an unfair insight into that particular market. I think I knew enough, but I think if entrepreneurs are pursuing things and you go back to like, what's the objective or what's the real insight? There are some people like, listen, you find very bright people and they figure out things and they pivot and they move along. Other people are like, you go after markets that are at the right moment for a startup to grow into it. I'm more biased towards the market side of it. You want to have great teams and you want to have a bunch of things work out. But I first start with markets. And I think if you ask yourself today, if I'm an entrepreneur going after a market, you ask, what do you understand about that particular market? The matching feature, which is hard, is young people who have not been in markets per se, but have insights are trying to validate, do I have unique insight? And so do I know enough about a market that there's something can be applied? And when those things work, I think that's a really good reason to pursue it. And the second thing that matches to it is how you choose those who you do it with. And my principle for that has been pretty basic, which is you follow great people who you want to be around, you want to be like them. And I definitely use that a bunch in my career. So that's just, if I was doing a startup today and I was in my 20s and I had this solution of there was some fundamental insight, I could match to a market, however I got there, the risk profile is great when you're young, so you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely have fewer responsibilities when you're young. It's yeah. funny, I have some friends who are in the entrepreneurial space who would say that experience is a bad thing, 
that you need to come in with a fresh perspective on a problem. And it's harder to do that if you've been in an industry for a long time. And I guess if you think about this in sort of like, do you go for the people? Do you go for the market? Do you have experience? Do you not have experience? And kind of yeah. created that into a two by two. I think if I went and asked a hundred entrepreneurs, you probably have reasonably dispersed distribution about where they would say the sweet spot yeah. is when that two by two matrix. It's just interesting how different perspectives come to bear on that topic. Yeah, I think we're burdened at our age. There's a lot of head trash that goes with reasons that markets were really hard. Like I've seen the movie before problem. Yeah. And so you're always trying to balance that with some level of optimism bias. And again, I come back to like, if you have fundamental insight on why adoption might happen, you got to ask yourself where that came from. Yeah. I mean, to some extent as an entrepreneur, you need to have a certain degree of irrational exuberance. Otherwise yeah. you wouldn't even start because odds are you're going to fail as most do. But. Yeah, it's a function of your risk profile for startups. But I still think that there's a question in today's world on how different it is. Because I do think startups are just, they're so much more professionalized. The infrastructure, yeah. the financing, the awareness of prospective employees. Like it used to be that you recruited someone to a startup and you're going through like, how does equity work? And like today, everyone coming out of college has already learned a ton more than I knew after I'd been there for a while. So that helps make it feel like the risk might be less, actually. It's a very good point. I mean, you think about all the accelerators that are out there, the wealth of material that's available, the Y Combinator kind of model and all of those things that you can get access to. You didn't have that back when you were starting your company. You had to figure out a lot more for yourself. Yeah, it doesn't mean it wasn't just as challenging for either side today or back then. It's just a different bar. And so the bar for today, like you ask, what should anyone who has a bias towards that risk problem, why would you not try it if you felt like you were around people in a market that you liked? Because I think there was concern around when startups failed, you, know, you were marked. But today, to your point, like if most of them are going to fail, it's really around trying to what chapter of experience you want at what point and what market with what people. Yeah, I think that failed.com era, go back to the sort of 20, 21 years ago, 22 years ago, when the dot-com market blew up, there were so many people who had gone off to do a startup in that late 90s boom, that after that, it became a lot more acceptable, to your point, to have tried, not succeeded, learned a lot from it, that you could apply into the next job that somebody who had maybe just bided their time in a big corporate job wouldn't have been able to bring to bear. So I think it definitely works in your favor to have that experience. I certainly would encourage people to give it a go at some point. Yeah, I think the other thing is tech just in general. The tech maturity for everyone is so much higher. And so it is pretty fundamental. Like at Activate, the bet is that we're looking at basically tech stacks that can affect energy, mobility, and industrial tech broadly, where the next level of adoption, it's not the first time they've done something. It's just some of the solution sets that are being built are really fundamentally changing industries. And so the tech leverage is across all these industries, but yet the employee bases are all much more aware of it. It's not, mm -hmm. tech isn't narrow, it's a horizontal. Yeah, and being a tech geek became cool somewhere yeah, along maybe. the way. Maybe it was all the tech companies, the Googles and the Facebooks and the others. Maybe it was Big Bang Theory, I don't know, probably a combination of all of those things, but it's cool to be a geek now. Obviously you had, a tremendous amount of opportunity running this company, being the CEO and founder of it to kind of set the tone that you wanted to set. How did you approach it in terms of your own leadership style? And how did you think about the kind of culture that you wanted to create in the company? The like, main things, if you didn't imagine you were going to be running something at some point, and for me, it was you kind of went on a couple of base principles. So I can still remember 
when we were only 10 or 15 people, I think I sort of four bullets every year. I said, get smart, work smart, do what you say you're going to do and be ethical at all times. It was pretty Mm -hmm. basic. The get smart part that I was trying to apply was that because we were only 10 or 15 people, I wanted everyone to basically solve on their own what they needed to know. Study the what out of everything you can find. And obviously, there's enough on the net to solve at that point that they can go study anything, technical, business, whatever it was. And the work smart thing, I think, was in startups, there's this concern about burnout. And so the principle I always want to apply is that I don't want to micromanage. I trust that you, if you're driven, you're going to work as smart as you can, not to burn out, but you're going to work smart in like every level. You're going to make decisions around what isn't worth your time, what isn't something that's a priority. Because the other thing about that particular moment in time was there's no management infrastructure. It was like everyone was just had to trust. It was flat. And then the do what you say you're going to do for us was pretty critical. That I had to apply because we were distributed. We were work from home with the first 15 people. I think we had people in five or six states when we were 15 people. So back then, that was maybe a newer thing. But it reminded you that the only way you can work remote as a team, and we didn't have this kind of format, just living on cell phones, is that you had to trust that if someone said they had the baton, they were going to carry it and finish it. And then be ethical and honest at all times, of course, is a priority. So those are four that I lived on. I thought about that later when I was actually finishing up when we were leaving. I looked back at some of those things and they applied. I mean, it was much better, more mature versions of that. We had employee documents. We had statements of this is what you're going to sign up to do. This is what matters to us. These are our principles. These are our safety policies. We had all that by the time I was transitioning out. But those four simple things I came up with in 2005 or six, I still would use them today. What you hinted a little bit earlier at sort of what mattered to you in terms of the people that you wanted to surround yourself with. But how did you think about hiring people? What did you look for in particular? We were talking about LinkedIn before. Even back yeah. then, I was using LinkedIn. I remember cold calling people on LinkedIn, like we were looking for a team member in Atlanta. And I remember I found exactly the engineer we needed in Atlanta because we were doing building projects around the country. So we needed people to be near the buildings. I still remember calling someone where I unfairly critiqued their background on LinkedIn. And I think they were at the right age. The last job they had taken, they had been promoted. And I just called them and said, you don't know me, but my sense is you should be talking to us about a role where you would be the business development lead in the Southeast. And I didn't know how that conversation would go, but what's fun is if you unfairly critique someone on LinkedIn and then you provoke them on a cold call, you just see how they react. Yeah. And so that was the most revealing way that I would engage with something as opposed to later when we had search firms helping us or we had you know, traditional recruiting. But what I've always applied, and apart from the basics of what you try to assess on any interview about someone, are they motivated? What drives them? What decisions have they made? All those things aside, other thing that I lived on in venture capital and also as a manager was best blind due diligence on people, which is not that glamorous, but it's a pretty important way to validate your view of, is someone going to work for the team? So the other technique that I used that was the most important was I wanted to interview whoever we were going to hire for so long that they felt like they were working for the company by the time they were joining. And I actually had one team member who said that to me when we had a lunch and I gave him the offer and he said, I've already been working for you. Like, you don't have to give that to me now. Like, so that is only possible when you start a recruiting process like really early and you talk to people and you say, we're not ready for you right now, but a year from now, I bet we're going to grow into you or six months from now. And it just takes a lot of time. But for the early days when you're hiring skeleton teams on startups where each person is that much more critical and the organization is fragile. 
I could do that. That, that breaks the next point on. But the base principles are still the same, which is you try to get back channel due diligence to validate your assumption on someone. And you make sure that they know absolutely everything about the company and it kind of solves itself through that process, even if it isn't exhausting for nine months. Yeah, there's actually been, even this week, I don't know why it's sort of popped this week, but there was, I think, an article on Box about how laborious the interview processes are becoming with personality tests and mock presentations and group interviews and all these things. And to some extent saying, like, where is this all going? It's getting to be almost consuming. It's funny that you bring up the notion of saying that the person would say that they almost feel like they were working for you already before they joined the company. Because I think one of the things that people are feeling is like they're just really being put through their paces. And people sit on both sides of this argument about people are saying it shouldn't be this hard to hire somebody. I understand why people are doing more diligence because legally it gets harder to get rid of somebody as laws continue to tighten around that. So you want to make sure you're making the right decision. Yeah, I think the reverse is true though as well. Like in this, I'm putting a lens here towards startup and growth companies. Big companies yeah. can't do this. Once I was part of EDF, the French utility with 180,000 employees, I could not do what I was doing when we were a startup. So it's very much a function of what size company and what kind of team members you're looking for. Obviously the company survived the crisis. You went through a period of growth between then and when you were acquired. What did the company look like at the point where you did the deal and what made that the right time to do that? Yeah, I think we were tracking that in our particular sector, the building energy efficiency sector for commercial industrial buildings in the US, what we knew was going to be the most valuable thing, this was never going to be a public company. There's one public company in the sector called Amoresco, but we didn't anticipate we could grow into anything like that. But the European platform companies were going to come to the US. It so happened that over a period of a few years, they started to come to the US. So we knew we were going to be a target for someone like that. And I stayed close to a banker for 10 years. Every year I told them our business plan and said what we did. And I said, I just want you to know. And when the market says they're looking for something else, I want to be getting that call. I want to have the first Mm -hmm. right of that meeting. So the Europeans were coming through. We were acquired in 2016. They started coming, I think, in like 2014. And what that means by coming is that the biz dev people were in, they were looking for platform companies. We were a good target for that. And I didn't know how it was going to go, but we grew substantively. We were a leader in our sector for commercial industrial customers. We had Walmart and Target and lots of big enterprise customers. We were working on buildings across all the country. We had done enough work across the country that we were national in nature, although I think we only had employees in 22 or 23 states. But we, you know, we were a good target for a European player coming in. So I knew that. And it just so happened that at the end, EDF was the company that we chose to go with. And that brought on another chapter, which any entrepreneur who sold the company knows there's sort of that founder's dilemma of what's the right time to sell. We had investors. I'd raised a little bit of private capital, not digital lumens. We had raised venture capital, but for Groom Energy, we only raised from private capital. So effectively, it was our decision to manage that process without having to manage investors as closely. The investors were supportive of whenever you decide is right, that someone should be buying you, we're supportive. And it worked out great for them. You know, obviously judgment they can make is that it went well because they got a lot of capital back. And then for me, after we were acquired, I think one of the things you were asking is sort of, how's that go? Well, the process was efficient. We didn't write a PPM. I said, I'll do a Zoom call. I'll come see anyone. I didn't involve any of my team. When we first had the conversations, I tried to flush out. We didn't even sign the banker until after we had the term sheet because I just had a handshake saying, listen, I don't want to spend time with us unless we think it's real. So that worked out well. I was definitely proud of that efficiency around many deals get caught up in, many companies get caught up in acquisition M&A cycle and it can blow the company up. 
So I was determined not to have that happen. So after we did have success that way, I think we closed in September of 2016. The acquirer is EDF, the French utility, which is today 85% owned by the French government, soon to be 100%. They're going to take it back. But I was basically a French government employee. That was a pretty wacky journey after that. Because if you remember what was going on in 2016, there was also some amount of challenges around our political situation and what was going to happen relative to the change of the motion of the country. I signed up for an earnout, which was it ended up being longer than I had planned. And then I learned for the next three or four years how to be a French government employee. I was curious about that because on paper, you were doing the same job, but obviously being part of massive, mostly government-owned French utility, it had to feel different. What was similar and what was different for you in your role post-acquisition? Yeah, obviously, I was still running the company. We were the first, which is my objective, is if we were going to become part of a European communist in the US, the preference for me was that we were the first. The first of what would be a series of acquisitions. So that was the part that was exciting to me, is that we saw a way to be the lead that we would stitch in other companies to do a fuller solution set of energy building companies, if you will. So I was sort of double timing it relative to running what was Groom Energy that became Dalkia was the division that we were under. And then also looking at what else might fit relative to acquiring other companies, which eventually we did acquire more companies. What was different was that a large company that buys a U.S. company, or the first one, there's an educational process, there's a relationship development process, there is an administrative process. So you can probably guess was the first time I got the EDF compliance manual. I mean, yeah. it was an electronic thud factor that was like this thick, but I hadn't been around that since my days at Hewlett Packard or JP Morgan. So I knew that was coming. And so I think I took on the role for the first year of trying to grow our employee base into the benefits, but not the tax of being part of a big platform company. That was my adjusted role in addition to running the company and trying to look for M&A that would help us grow a national platform. I'm not saying that was the easiest. I'm just saying that was a role that was required to play. You mentioned Digital Lumens a minute ago. What was that about? How did it fit in with what you were otherwise doing at Green? Yeah, so we were a reseller as Digital Lumens. So eventually I hired the first four or five people with the capital we had raised. We built the first product. And then fortunately, I was able to recruit a CEO to take the company to the next level of the pilots. And the first product was designed and the patents were filed. And so we ended up becoming, Groom Energy was a reseller. Then Digital Lumens was working with our competitors as well. Mm -hmm. And so Digital Lumens went on to raise a bunch more venture capital and itself was acquired by another European company, Osram, in 2000 and around the same time, 2016, 2017. So we were both at a stage where for different reasons, we were considered as targets for acquisition. And I know you've done some advisory work over the years as well, advising startups. Having been an entrepreneur and played that advisory role, what do you think makes a good advisor to a startup and how should an entrepreneur think about selecting the right advisor for their particular situation? To generalize, I think the best entrepreneurs who are seeking some sort of advice, call it a formal advisor or just someone that they lean on for certain things is to know how to fill in your blind spots and how to get validation for the things that you're trying to make decisions on. So advisors different from governance and board structure, just advisors, I think of a more loosely affiliated, but there's some context. I think with some situations, I've literally been someone where a CEO can just vent to me and you know, my job is just to shut the hell up and listen. And I had my own way of getting that done with Grim Energy. Digital Lumens was different, I had a board structure, but I think it's very much a function of what the individual believes they need 
as opposed to the formal advisor thing that says that there's somebody who's bringing visibility to the company and perhaps where I think a lot of people think of advisory boards as saying someone who's senior who's in the sector, who has customer connectivity or context for the technology. I've played more of the role of someone who, because I've worked as an executive and inventor, that I can just listen. And if I can answer or react to some ideas, it kind of gives slight validation to what might be things that are otherwise, you're kind of lonely sometimes as an entrepreneur and a CEO trying to figure things out. So that's typically the role that I've played more of, but I do know that other advisors, they bring something different, which is they're really visible, they have super senior connectivity, they know the technology stack, as I mentioned. So I do think it's around, if you have blind spots or you have needs in any of those, you can assemble a handful of advisors who each bring you something very specific. Yeah, and I think that sort of portfolio approach to it makes a lot of sense, getting people with different backgrounds and different skill sets and using that to fill in for each other in addition to filling in for you as the founder, CEO in those situations. For me, what was hard when I left Dalkia EDF and I was doing some more advisory work and I had been in a CEO role and I was used to doing something that I had done for a number of years, I was probably unused to not knowing the answer from my experience base when I was trying to advise anyone. Because what I realized is how little you really know about a company. So the frequency of communication, the types of materials you read, and how you provide any reaction to anything, I was reminded during my year after I left EDF, I was more humbled, that when you're trying to be an advisor to anyone, you have to start every conversation with qualify, I know this much, because you actually know even less than that. So I'm pretty humble about that now, even with the companies that are on our portfolio. So I think if you have advisors that fit your personality, you want to share your experiences with them and you can develop a relationship and there's going to be a regular dialogue and it's more natural, those are probably the ones that you should first focus on if you're looking for advisors. You have to get energy from a conversation. You have to find that it's not a tax from a handful of people and you have to want to invest to teach them more about the business because they're not going to learn otherwise. The reactions are going to be highly qualified. Yeah, it's a good point. Across the different things you've done over the years, you've been in tech, you've been in banking, you've been in the energy space. Sustainability certainly been a key thread for you over the last 20 odd years. What have been the other consistent threads that are woven through your career? I think at the end of the day, I still remember the core principles of focus on who you work with. I went to my first startup, it was an internet startup in 94, 95 of market. And it was an internet startup and I couldn't spell internet. I had been at Hewlett Packard and I was going to take a job at CSC Index as a consultant because I was trying to figure out how to grow into what really was related to the internet. And I was following someone from Hewlett Packard who went there, a guy named Bob Weinberger. And through Bob's joining this startup, I met a couple other people. I went to interview with them and I left saying, I have to work with them. I don't know what the internet is, but I have to work with them. And I had the same experience when I even finished up Duke because you and I both did Duke thing. I was an electrical engineer. And I was going to go work for GE at one of the manufacturing management programs. And I went to Wall Street at JP Morgan and I interviewed with a bunch of people. And I'm like, I don't know what banking is, but I want to be with these people. And so it was not about domain. It was just my interview of them while they were interviewing me. I'm like, I don't know, but I definitely want to be around you. And it wasn't because they were identical to me. It was just the energy I got from the interview process taught me that it was secondary about what the company did at that moment. But that principle is probably true today. I look at it when we're investing in companies, because when you invest in companies and venture capital, like you're investing for a long time. 
And it doesn't mean you have to be best friends. It's just there's something you get out of those relationships that you think is going to make you smarter, make you more fulfilled, push you to be a better version of yourself for all those cliches. Yeah. So that theme is probably true today. Even when I talk to my kids coming out of college, like what do they want to pursue? I'm like, start with that. What have been the best times for you professionally? And what was it about those that made them particularly special? I'll tell you one thing that is part of my world is I'm looking for light times, not just like the ring the bell win times. And so I measure like if you're in meetings with team members and people are laughing and having fun, in addition yeah. to having great outcomes, if you can match those where people bring energy from like literal like laughter, if you can match those two, like I can remember the best times when we had successes when an open market went public. That was a big moment, like a moment in time it was a journey up there, but that was a defining moment. I can remember obviously success post uh, selling companies as being moments in time, but the journey up to those, the being scared and not knowing how it work out was as my daughter and I have a term called Nervix mm. and uh, nervous and excited together. Like the Nervix periods were the best. They were the yeah. ones that ended up the evidence that I can say is more defining is like we went public or we were acquired or we got a great customer. Like we just signed a really key customer that's really company forming. But it was the Nervix part leading up to that. And people were energized. And the other thing I measure is, was their laughter in the room during the process. You and your daughter have your own word for it. But I think the psychology literature would back you up in saying, I think it's something like if you're 15% out of your comfort zone, that's where you perform at your best because you know you've got to be on your toes. It's not rote, but it's not so out of your comfort zone that you feel overwhelmed or just completely that's, yeah, that's uncomfortable right. about what you're doing. I think Daniel Pink's written about that too in his book, Drive, if you've read that book. I love Daniel Pink. I haven't read uh, Drive. But the other thing that you can relate to when you've been through these journeys is what were those around you getting out of the process? And so for me, if you go back to the CEO, investor, I remember times when our teams were more fulfilled individually and collectively. And like, I felt so lucky to have been around that. And so those were defining moments where I could see teams have success together and I happened to be part of it. That was stunning. And then on the investor side, when I talk to companies today, in many cases, I find myself saying, memorize this moment because the way they're articulating and we're a growth investor. So you're hearing these stories where inflection is coming. So that I can see through their characterizations of the moment in time they're in. I'm like, just memorize this because yeah. it's just spectacular. And it is this wonderful Nervix kind of thing, but they have confidence, but it's not exactly sure how it's going to play out. Those are probably the most important times when you're in these startup journeys, apart from the ones where you're worried about the company going under. Yeah. Those are probably more nervous than excited. Well, it uh, makes you respect more... some basic things. Like you appreciate when things are going well, when customers are paying their bills, when you have your first closes of key customers, when you have cash, like these are, I think, some of what's going on today, which I hear folks our age considering is people haven't been through these cycles necessarily. It doesn't matter. But the point is that there are some learnings. In some cases, it's head trash or tax that like, oh, just remember when it was bad. And so yeah. the optimism bias that entrepreneurs usually have can get you through it. But it's a healthy respect for the fact that sometimes situations are good. We have cash. Customers say they like what they're doing. We're growing. We've hired a bunch of great people. And it sort of gets over all the other stuff that's not so easy. What do you do to recharge your battery? Today, it's a lot harder. What you and I are doing right now with getting away from Zoom. So I think today's world is around managing your calendar because the calendar yeah. fills in and you can't get away from it. You know, for us, I told you for the getaway, like how do you get mental getaways? 
for us, we went up to New Hampshire, which we go up by a Winnipesaukee. And literally the drive for that is therapy for me. It's actually mm-hmm. just the drive because it's a really pretty drive. And the, where we go, there's not much traffic no matter when it is, even in the summer. So that's an escape we get to. And then the other thing that I didn't appreciate, we have two dogs. And you see the meme or the cartoons for COVID where the dog's like, no more walks. So over yeah. the last probably 10 years, the dog walking, is, as silly as that sounds, has been my getaway time. I take these out of my ears. I don't take my phone. There's like really basic things we do, like a drive and a walk. Yeah, both those things are sort of physical environment resets, which then gives your brain a little bit of a chance to reset, particularly if you leave your phone at home. Oh, man, that's a special skill you got to have. Yeah, to leave your phone at what's home, yours? especially in this day What's, what's your escape? H- hiking episodically, I would say more week to week or day to day, it'd be the running. Gets me out. You just living in London, it's more city running, which I don't love, but you do get to sort of see different parts of the city, particularly on some of the longer runs. I can get the places that I wouldn't necessarily normally walk to that are closer to where we live. So, but the hiking, definitely when I can do that, it's a little bit harder living in London, not having a car, but I still, I get out there and it, it's the same thing. It's just a mental reset. Yeah. I do think that we're all adjusting to the work from home thing. And we did it the whole time we did Groom Energy. It was always a work from home company. So when COVID hit, we were doing Google Meet. So we did a, some amount of video because we were doing that with the French to try to save on some flights. So I thought I'd do a work from home company. We were all SaaS everything. Everyone had access to everything. Everyone was collaborating. And then we would fly to see each other for projects and for meetings. But I just think we're all witnessing this. My office is at home and it literally is, I can do everything from here. So I think the escapes are a lot more what you guys just figured out, which is get outside and don't have electronics. Last question. Any last career guidance you want to provide for our listeners or viewers? Yeah, I mean, if, if it's operating centric, I'd say the one we didn't talk about, we said, what were the best times? It's sort of how do you get through the challenging times? And I, as part from 2008, 2009, one of the tougher things I think that you have to consider is when people need to transition from companies. And so I was thinking when you were saying like, what are the highlights with the best moments? So I can think of the most challenging that aren't as extreme as world collapsing. Number one is when you have to transition someone from a company. And those are very defining for people. And I can think of some situations for me where I'm very proud of how that went. I can think of other ones where I was literally scared for how it would go. And so those to me were the most difficult moments to know is what you're doing correct as a judgment. As much as we have today systems for tracking performance and it becomes so obvious, like ultimately, I think from an operating standpoint for startups and for any stage company, you have a healthy respect for anyone who's had to go through transitioning people, both individually, but even what's going on today in the tech markets, which is layoffs. These are the things that are the badges of honor. You just say, if you do it respectfully and you do it as best you can, you're never going to feel good. But I'm more aware of that today, that having been part of the chapters that we wrote that were difficult and I still feel satisfied, but it's, it's part of what the world's going through today that I think everyone has to appreciate. You cope with your own style. There's no set of rules, but it's the hardest thing. It definitely is hard. And it's funny that you bring that up because I've been through a lot of rounds of layoffs, been on both sides of them over the years, and it kind of comes with the corporate territory. I think if I were going to answer that question about sort of the times that have been the toughest, for me, the times that have been the toughest are just when I felt like I'm banging my head against the wall. And no matter what you do, there's sort of some constraint around you that's just preventing you from having the kind of success you want. For me, those are really the most frustrating times that I've been through. Yeah. But we shouldn't end on a bad one. On the good, like the last thing I would say is that to the extent to which you write chapters in any company, 
whether it's by year or whether it's by company, it is the case that we're all trying to assemble a set of experiences inside of our career journeys that somehow feel like they're building on each other, that you'd like to imagine that. And so Mm. I think when I reflect back on the chapters, I do see relations between them that sometimes at the moment aren't so obvious, but later you can see how you've assembled a set of things that have built on themselves. So you're more capable of having an impact and becoming fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, all those things they do, they do come together. The accumulation of things you've done in the past, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've been through outside of work, all of those things come to bear. So, and the wise take advantage of that. Sometimes you have to learn it in retrospect, but yes. Or the hard way. Fair enough. All right. Well, John, this has been great. Thanks for the time. Nice fun. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. You're another stop on the reunion tour of people I haven't talked to in a long time who I'm getting a chance to catch up with. So, Hopefully, it will not be quite as long between now and the next time, and it's good to get an updated sense of what you're doing. I'm glad you're part of Pathways' program. It's great. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good day and good weekend. I want to thank John. It was great to catch up with him to discuss his career journey, what he's been doing over the last 20-plus years, and his longstanding commitment to building businesses focused on sustainability. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.